All right, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can take those and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the chair racks uh, beneath the chairs in front of you. And you're welcome to take that as a gift from us if you don't own a Bible. Uh, these <clears throat> verses that we read will also be projected on the screen behind me. So Romans chapter 6, let's just begin with the first couple of verses. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? All right, so today we are picking back up our study of Romans. We took a few weeks off for a topical study on the church, and we're returning today uh, by picking up with chapter 6. Actually, <clears throat> chapter 6 is sort of a huge parenthetical statement inserted into the book here, dealing with the very first and really the most logical objection that anyone might bring against the gospel. Namely, that it leads to antinomianism and sinful conduct. So, if you're not familiar with the term antinomianism, let's spend just a minute on that to make sure we're on the same page. It is basically a rejection of God's law, or more specifically, it's a rejection of the idea that anyone is required to obey it. The word literally means against the law. And antinomianism has raised its head from time to time throughout church history. It's not a new thing. Most of the objections to the gospel or heresies that we might run into are not new. So if we would just become a little more acquainted with church history, we would know about these. In fact, Martin Luther wrote a book called Against the Antinomians, uh, and it was to refute the teachings of a man named Johann Agricola, who was sort of a neo-Lutheran antinomian. He preached that it was okay not to have to obey the law. So here in Romans 6, we're also going to see a refutation of that false teaching but let me back up for a moment. I called Romans chapter 6 a parenthetical statement following the approach of Romans chapter 5 through 8 as taught by the English preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I hold in very high regard. But that arrangement that he uses is not universally accepted, so I need to explain the position if I can very quickly. Uh, you may recall this, maybe not. Back when I started chapter 5, I said that I was departing from the traditional outline, the most common outline of Romans, according to, to which these chapters, chapters 5 and especially chapter 6, deal with sanctification. In the traditional division of Romans, I'll put this up on the screen, chapters 1 and through 4 deal with justification. 
And then chapters 5 through 8 with sanctification, that process of becoming more and more like Christ-like as we live our life. Chapters 9 through 11 deals with the problem of Israel. And then chapters 12 through 16 deal with some practical matters that Paul wants to teach. And of course there's truth to that arrangement. I'm not here to say that all of the scholars throughout history who have put Romans into those categories are necessarily wrong about all of it. The first chapters obviously present the great doctrine of justification. And the next section does touch on sanctification. And the next one mentions the Jews and so on. But I believe that to approach the book of Romans as if it were arranged in four segregated columns or compartments is to misunderstand it completely. And of course, logically, an error in the overall analysis of the book will also lead to errors in handling the specific parts, which I think is the case here. So what do we see when we look at Romans 5? Well, some people have approached this chapter as if it were listing the results of justification. God justifies you. Here are the results of that declaration. A sort of wrap-up of the previous four chapters. And then the author supposedly launches into his second category called sanctification. But if you remember, we didn't see it that way through these sermons because I believe what Paul is most concerned about in chapter 5 is that our justification is permanent. In other words, his concern is not with the results of justification, though he certainly mentions results of, of our justification, but rather with the assurance of it. That's why he writes at the very start of the chapter in verse 2, this is chapter 5 we're talking about, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. These are referenced to God's glorification, the ultimate and inevitable outcome of God's work in Paul and in you and in me. It is also why a few verses further on we find Paul saying in chapter 5, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Can you hear the, the promise of permanence in those words? And these words actually anticipate the really triumphant note with which he ends chapter 8. If we skip a couple of chapters and go to chapter 8, we read, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, in chapter 5 and also in chapter 8, Paul seems to pass directly from justification to glorification. And it's not because he's unaware that sanctification fits into the middle of that sequence, but it is because he wants to feature, he wants to stress the permanent nature of our justification. So we go from justification to glorification. It's promised. Romans 8.30, that chain of progression of our uh, Christian life 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see how he went from justified to glorified? Without mentioning anything in the middle about sanctification? Although Paul knew sanctification was in there. But the way this verse is structured shows the permanence, the assurance of our justification. And I don't think I ever mentioned it prior to this, but I think this is the way chapter 5 was progressing. Verses 12 through 21 deal with our union with Jesus Christ, which is a complicated topic, but we went through it very slowly. And it taught that just as we were united with Adam in his sin, so that his fall became our fall, and we were condemned in him, just like that was true, so also have Christians now become united to Jesus Christ so that his death for sin became our death to sin and his triumph ours. This too is permanent. So when Paul gets to the end of the chapter and speaks the chapter 5, he speaks of the reign of grace through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. His point is that nothing is going to defeat God's great plan for us. Again, stressing the permanence or the assurance of our justification. So what's interesting, in terms of the overflow of thought, the the progression of thought here, what follows immediately after chapter 5 would be chapter 8. They just seem to go together. But if that's the case... If these middle chapters of Romans are dealing chiefly with assurance, why are chapters 6 and 7 here at all? Why did he put those in here? Or to put it in another way, since I've called chapter 6 a parenthesis, why does Paul interrupt the flow of the letter at this point? Why instead of going straight from chapter 5 to chapter 8, does he insert chapter 6 and 7? Well, I think the answer, we're still talking about kind of the structure of the book here. I think the answer goes back to what he said in chapter 5. In verse 20, he said that the law, the law of God was given to increase the trespass. Remember, we kind of dealt with that. Then in verse 21, he spoke of the triumph of God's grace in us. So if you think carefully about those, you can see that this introduces a couple of problems. First, if grace is destined to triumph in us, as Paul says it is, doesn't this inevitably lead to loose living? In fact, doesn't this even suggest that we should sin more so that grace might have even more space in which to be triumphant? But that can't be right, can it? But since it seems to follow from Paul's teaching, doesn't it discredit Paul's doctrine? The second problem concerns the law. In verses 12 through 21, Paul quickly passes from Adam to Jesus Christ. He compares our death in Adam to our life in our union with Jesus Christ. 
But everyone knows that between those two great historical events, the law was given to Israel. I mean, the law must have had a purpose, right? Or God wouldn't have given it. But how can that fit into Paul's teaching? I mean, if you retain the law as some part of the gospel, you destroy the gospel of salvation by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But if, on the other hand, you retain the gospel, then the law is superfluous. It means nothing. And I think those are valid questions to consider. And so rather than ignore them and pass on directly to what he says in chapter 8, the apostle stops at this point to answer those questions. And so that's what we have in front of us. He deals with the problem of antinomianism in chapter 6. So that's what will take our attention for a few weeks. And then he deals with the problem of the law in chapter 7. Okay? So as we start, Romans chapter 6, to me at least, it seems like we're not departing upon some radically different new section as here for the first time, Paul begins to address the problem of the Christian sanctification. I don't see that's really what's going on. And the reason for that is because the chapter begins with a question that immediately turns us back to chapter 5. The question, Paul asks, is what shall we say then? And so we say, say about what? What, what shall we say about what? And the answer, of course, is what he has just said in Romans 5. He gives his teaching in Romans 5 and then says, what should we say about this? Because in Romans chapter 5, again, verses 20 and 21, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the questions I would come up with would be something like, where does the doctrine of the triumph of God's grace lead us? We see here that grace will reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where does that doctrine lead us today? Well, there's really only two possibilities. On the one hand, it could lead to sinful conduct, the antinomian objection. If sin is going to be conquered by grace, then we might as well just keep on sinning. Sin doesn't matter. Grace is going to win. On the other hand... The triumph of grace could lead us to righteousness. This is the position that Paul will actually hold out to us as truth. So in one way or the other, the entire sixth chapter is going to be an answer to this question, what shall we say then? But before we launch into answering that question, I think we need to take time to really feel the full force of the objector's argument. 
Because you, as Christians, may read it and say, well, that's preposterous on the surface. Of course we don't sin more so that God's grace can abound more. But everybody is not a Christian in America in this century. So what might others think? Well, here's what I want you to understand about that argument. First, it is logical. It's a logical argument. I mean by that, that it's a reasonable question to ask after one has understood the true gospel. You are told that you're saved by grace, not of your own works, but by God's grace. It's completely apart from human works. If that is so, if works aren't the basis of our salvation, why do we have to worry about works at all? Shouldn't we just go on sinning? I mean, the presence of this question is in one sense a test of whether your gospel is really the gospel of the New Testament. Is it really the gospel that Paul preached? And I'm here to tell you most religious teaching today is not the gospel that Paul preached. Most religions tell you that in order to get to heaven, what you must do is stop sinning and start doing good works. And you'll be saved if you do this well enough and long enough. Now, a person preaching along those lines, if you're preaching that to me, it's inconceivable that you would say something like, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Your whole gospel is about not sinning and doing more good works in order to be saved. Your, your whole point is that salvation comes by doing lots of good works, not lots of sinning. So to go on sinning is the exact opposite of this doctrine. Nobody who teaches a works-based righteousness ever asks that question. I don't know how they read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. But if one teaches like Paul did, that a person is saved by grace apart from works, then the objection we're talking about is really the first thing that comes to mind. It is the argument that religious people raised against Martin Luther. It was the question repeatedly thrown up to George Whitfield. A modern commentator, Ray Steadman, suggests that there is something about the grace of God and the glory of the good news that immediately raises this question. So it's logical, I think. Second, I would say that this objection is natural. <clears throat> that same theologian <laughs> talks about this point. He says, sin is fun and we like to do it. And that may be a little harsh, because I understand, for a Christian at least, there is both an attraction to sin as well as a reaction against sin. That is the war that rages in our souls. But the point is well taken, at least in the sense that our flesh or our sinful nature, to use Paul's term, inclines to sin naturally. To put it another way, 
as far as our old nature is concerned, righteousness calls us to an unnatural path. The path of self-denial and cross-bearing of Luke 9.23. So it's logical and it's natural. And the, th- the third thing I would say about this argument is that it's actually pious. And when I say that, I mean that it only occurs within a religious setting and among those who are at least somewhat concerned about being righteous. That's why I think it was such a major problem for the Jews. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul wrote, he's talking about the gospel here, and he says that it is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So it was foolish to the Gentiles because it ran counter to their philosophy. They could not see how God could become man. Because in their mind, according to their ethos, spirit was good while flesh was bad. And so for God to become a man, the good God would have to take on sin or in some way become evil. And again, the Gentiles couldn't see how Jesus could be a savior of others When on the cross, he couldn't save himself. These were their problems with the gospel. But the Jews were different. The Jews had the law. And their religion was chiefly concerned with right conduct, right living. Therefore, when Paul came along teaching that salvation could not be achieved by moral living but had to be a gift of God, apart from good works, the Jews naturally saw this as an attack upon personal righteousness, and they objected to it. It was their very religiosity that acted as a stumbling block. All right, so these, I think, are three fair things to say about this argument. And I'm about to tell you why they are completely unfair, and you'll try to figure out what what is he talking about, but we'll take it slowly. So, if it troubles you, this question, it shouldn't for long. Because as soon as we begin to explore the problem, as Paul does in Romans 6, we said that the inference that Christians should continue in sin is unthinkable. Paul's response after after he is asked the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, is by no means. That's in verse 2. So we've already seen this expression once in chapter 3. And it's a powerful one. The two Greek words that make this up actually mean let it not be. And they have the force of powerful negation. They could actually mean, if you want to put it into our language today, it is inconceivable for it to be thus. Or, it is unthinkable. It should not even be considered. Some translators actually translate it as God forbid. So why is it unthinkable? In fact... Isn't it contradictory for me to suggest this, that it's unthinkable? I just told you that it's logical and it's natural and it's pious. So now, how can you say just a few minutes after that that it's unthinkable? 
that it shouldn't even be considered? The answer, I think, and to me it's obvious, but I didn't state it because I wanted to wait until now to state it, is that although the objection is logical and natural and pious, on a very superficial level, especially to one who is newly hearing the gospel of salvation, it is seen to be completely untenable as soon as one probes further. The more you understand the gospel, the more ridiculous this question appears. In fact, you don't even have to really probe very deeply because the answer, given quite simply as Paul does, is this. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, there have been a lot of misunderstandings about what Paul meant by the statement, we died to sin. So we're going to dive into that the next time we meet together in Romans. But even without that study coming up, I think we can already see the folly of the let's go on sinning position. So why is this objection absurd? There are several reasons. First, it overlooks God's purpose in the plan of salvation, which Paul has been unfolding. It overlooks God's purpose. So what is the purpose of salvation? Well, clearly, it's to save men from sin. Wouldn't you agree? But what does that mean? Does it mean that God saves us from the punishment of our sin? It does mean that, but not only that. Yes, we are justified by God in order that we might be saved from the wrath of final judgment. But that's only one part of God's plan. Well then, does salvation mean that God is saving us from sin's guilt? Well, yes, that too. But again, not only that. I mean, sin brings guilt. We know that. So one of the blessings of salvation is to be delivered from guilt, knowing not that sin has just been overlooked, but it has also been punished in the person of Jesus Christ. Still, deliverance from guilt is only part of the purpose of salvation. What about the deliverance from sin's presence? Well, yes, of course. But again, that only happens at the end when we are glorified. Now, each of these points are important but the one thing that has not been mentioned yet is that salvation is also has the purpose of saving us from the practice of sin now. And it is clearly also a part of God's purpose. And no one part of our deliverance from sin rightly should be separated from the others. This is the overarching purpose of our salvation. So if we go on practicing sin now, we are contradicting the very purpose of God in our salvation. So that's the first one, first reason why this argument is absurd. Secondly, the antinomian objection is absurd because it overlooks God's means. 
of saving sinners, God's means. Now, early on in Romans, we were very much concerned with a sinner's justification. The act by which God declares a person to be in a right standing for his justice due to the death of Jesus Christ. It's basically a declaration. God declares us to be just. But at the same time that we saw this, we saw that this is not all that's involved. God justifies, but Christ also redeems. God forgives, but the Holy Spirit also makes us spiritually alive so that we can perceive and by faith embrace that forgiveness. Indeed, what Paul has been talking about in Romans 5 is the believer's union with Jesus Christ. And what is that union like? Well, it's not a mechanical bonding, or it's not legal only, but it's as vital, the Bible says, as the union between a vine and its branches. Or it's just as vital as the union between a head and the other parts of a person's body. Therefore, if we are saved, we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ... He is in us, and his life within us will inevitably turn us from sin to righteousness. One commentator says, Union with Christ, being the only source of holiness, cannot be the source of sin. Therefore, if we find it possible to go on sinning so that grace may increase, we only prove by our actions that we're not really saved. It's as simple and as strong as that. We died to sin, Paul says. How can we live in it any longer? Third, it's absurd to think we can go on sinning so that grace may abound. Because if we think that way, we've really never understood God's grace. In previous sermons here in Romans, we learned that grace is neither diminished nor withdrawn because of our sin. That is, God doesn't cease to be gracious because we fall into sin. But just because grace is not diminished by sin does not mean that it is ever defeated by it. In fact, the contrary is true. Paul said in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, grace abounded all the more. And grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the business of grace? That question was asked by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he answers it. Is it to allow us to continue in sin? No. It is to deliver us from the bondage and the reign of sin and to put us under the reign of grace. You see, a reigning monarch is a triumphant monarch. If grace is reigning in us, grace is advancing its conquest over sin. Christians sin, but they are not defeated by sin and they do not continue in it. Do you really understand the absurdity of the objector's question now? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If you understand the nature of grace, 
you will understand that for grace to increase, sin must decrease, not increase. The goal of grace is to destroy and vanquish sin. Therefore, if a person goes on sinning, as the objection suggests, it shows that he or she actually has no part in grace and is not saved. I want to close with two warnings. The first one should be obvious from what I've said so far, and the second is a deduction from the first one. The first warning is directed particularly to the many people in religious circles who have a lot of head knowledge about doctrine. And they suppose that just because they know such things and give mental assent to them, that all is therefore well with their souls, that they are saved. That is not necessarily the case. If you are such a person, I need to warn you that it is not enough for you only to believe these things. Salvation is not mere knowledge. It is a new life. It is union with Christ. Therefore, unless you are turning from sin and going on in righteousness as you follow after Jesus Christ, you are not saved. It is presumptuous to believe that you are. So examine your life. Make sure you are saved. The Bible warns you to confirm your calling and election in 2 Peter 1.10. The very doctrines of justification, grace, and sanctification urge this upon you. And there's another warning. And this is to all Christians. And it is the words of an old Puritan preacher who asked this question in relation to our passage here in Romans. And so I ask this of you. Is there anyone here who, by his conduct, gives occasion for this objection? Is there anyone here who, by his conduct, gives occasion for this objection? You may not believe, I hope you don't believe that you can be saved and go on sinning. But is your life so careless that an unsaved person looking on might reasonably conclude that this is precisely what the doctrine of justification by faith means for Christians, that you can't go on sinning. If that's the case, you need to correct that impression at once. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 17. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. That old Puritan preacher I referred to earlier said this as well. It is a lamentable fact that one man who dishonors the gospel by an unholy walk, does more injury to the souls of men than ten holy ones do him good. Let me say it again. It's a lamentable fact that one man who dishonors the gospel by an unholy walk 
does more injury to the souls of men than ten holy men can do them good. I urge you to be part of the solution. Part of the ten holy men rather than part of the problem. Let your life be marked by righteousness, not marred by sin, for your own soul's good as well as the good of others. I'm going to invite our servers for the Lord's Supper and Weston back to the stage 